That woke up, didn't it? <laughs> you never gauge the volume. That's the problem. I, I did turn it off at one point, so I'm, I apologise for that. Um, <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> sorry? Yes, that's right, absolutely. Yeah, he's telling everyone to listen. Um, we're, we're looking at uh, who is God. Uh, this is a two-part um, session, I suppose, um, message. Uh, the first one... Uh, today is uh, about gaining a better understanding of God's nature and appreciate how we are connected with God in who he is. Um, next week, and the reason why it's on its own is probably you'll understand, uh, next week is to understand uh, the Trinity. Uh, and I say that lightly, to understand the Trinity. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, that on its own is a subject that needs its own week. Uh, so that will have its own week. Um, but today we're going to learn about who God is, the kind of being he is, uh, and the essence of who he is. And we want to gain this understanding of God's nature. We want to understand uh, who is this God that rules over the universe, who rules over the, 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 the earth, the seas, everything in the universe. Um, and so today we'll look at two parts specifically in this. Uh, the first one is what kind of being is God? and the essence of God. I don't claim to have uh, all the answers in here. Um, can't answer this in a 30 to 40 minute um, preaching. Uh, but it's been enough for, for us to really get to grips with who he is and, and what kind of being has saved us from hell. Um, and that, that is just, just going through this is just amazing to understand the kind of beauty and the, the depth of God and even then not even truly understand the depth of God. So... Um, the, the, the first part we start with is uh, what kind of being is God and it starts in this John 4 verse 24 uh, and it says God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth uh, God is a being uh, who is beyond the physical realm God is a being who is uh, beyond time itself uh, had that not been the case uh, how could he know to plan to know what's coming and what's been and uh, here's the Alpha and Omega. So we have a God that exists outside of time but he's also very much in time uh, and of time. And this amazing paradox of God which will go through the paradoxes, these things that don't seem to make sense in the world uh, but from a, from a heavenly perspective, from the kingdom perspective, uh, they make absolutely perfect sense. So if you don't necessarily understand today, it's okay, uh, because it's one you need to get to grips with outside of this time, and you need to read the Bible more, uh, because you'll never, you'll never, never, ever understand in this time who God is, and the hope is, whatever is coming next when we meet him, uh, we will have a full understanding of who he is, because we'll be with him, worshipping him and his name. Um, and so, don't necessarily un uh, get worried about the things that will be said today and, uh, and scramble for... I don't get it. Listen, I've had to go through this a lot and there are things that I don't get that I just give it to God. And I say, Lord, listen, I, I can't think this through. This thing is beyond my brain power. So I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to let you have it. And I'm going to say, Lord, just teach me in it. Teach me to be happy in that, to be content in who you are. And that's really what this message is about. Who God is is about being content in who God is. And the description of God 
probably uh, this description of God here, the God is spirit, probably confounds most people uh, in many religions, including Christianity. Uh, and we sometimes find ourselves uh, using material objects to, uh, as our object of affection towards God. And it can even be the cross that we've got here. Uh, it can even be this building. It can be many things that we use, uh, a cross that we wear around our neck, uh, and all sorts of objects. I'm not saying they in themselves are wrong, um, but we can find ourselves using material objects uh, to almost just to, just to remind us of the, who God is, just to give us that visual representation. But here Jesus is describing a God who is not bound by location. Um, God is spirit, and so he's not bound by a door. He's not bound by a wall. Uh, he's not bound by the doors being bolted shut. Uh, he is spirit and therefore able to be anywhere and everywhere. And there's a couple of tests later that I'm going to ask you to try and guess the meaning or know the meaning of some words. And you're going to probably get confused as to which one is which. Starts with omni. Yeah, think about it. Okay. So, that's a test for later. Let's carry on. Acts 17, verse 24 to 25. Uh, it says... The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands uh, as if he needed anything. Uh, rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God is not something we can grasp materially. Um, and we as humans desire that thing to, to hold, to have, to, to look at, to uh, un make God an object almost sometimes. And actually, um, we need to be careful that those things don't become our idols, those things don't become our lucky charms, because that can happen. People can use things and objects, and even buildings, to say, I can only do a certain kind of worship, certain kind of prayer, certain kind of activity within the four walls of a church. Uh, and that's not true at all. Uh, as we, uh, on the other side of the cross, uh, have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we can experience God and be with God anywhere uh, and do the same things if we were in this building or at home or on the street or wherever uh, you might be. So it's not something we can grasp materially, but something more than that, more than any object we can wear that represents him or any building that is built to represent him. God's existence is different from ours and it has no beginning or origin. He is the only uncaused cause. It's the only uncaused cause. He has not been caused into creation by something else. Is what some people would have you believe in the world. He must have been created by something because nothing can be created from itself. The only thing that can be an uncaused cause is God. The only thing he is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, never ending. But God is spirit, as it says in our um, in, in the words there today. As Jesus stated when he speaking with the Samaritan woman, a time will come when people will worship God in spirit and truth. That understanding, this essence of God, will be by our worship to Him. Uh, do you, when you see this verse, uh, I don't actually have it. Um, I was going to put it in. But when he's speaking to the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman, he says there's a time will come when people will worship him in spirit and truth. Uh, 
just understand this for a second. God is spirit, and he's not saying that he comes to us in that sense, as, uh, and then we can worship him. He's saying, you will come to God, because he's already with us, remember? He's already with us. In spirit and in truth of the Holy Spirit, we will worship him. Get this, understand this idea that goes on here, that what Jesus is saying is that when we worship him in spirit and truth, we're not doing it from ourselves or our own strength. We talked about this some months ago. We talked about faith, having, having faith in Jesus. Faith is from God. So we have faith in him and we worship him in spirit and truth because he is spirit. There'll be a time, he says, when you won't worship on this mountain or that place, this place or that place. You'll worship in spirit and truth anywhere not because it's a location that we were told to worship in. But now anywhere you can be, God will be with us. Worship him in spirit and truth. This concept of God's being can defy even our imagination. And people get frustrated by not being able to understand who God is. People get annoyed and angry by not understanding why things happen to them, why in this life things happen to them. And so the first thing we go to as sinful people is to blame God, is to be angry at him. Why have you done this, God? I, I don't understand an anger towards something that most people, that some people, probably most people, we're talking about believers here, most people don't believe in God. And yet, when trouble comes, how have you done this to me? Why have you done this to me? Why do I deserve this? But you see, God's being of who he is he hasn't done this to frustrate us. He hasn't done it to get us annoyed with him. And the reason why we get annoyed with him is because we try to use this to figure him out. And only this. I'm not saying that's wrong, but only this alone will not figure him out. And what we do is we get really annoyed when we use this to try and figure out actions and things that have gone on in the world. Christians and non-Christians alike can be just as angry as each other towards God. But he's not doing that to frustrate us. It's to remind us that we are finite sinful beings reflecting on the nature of an infinite and perfect being. So let me explain, let me try to explain what's going on when we might get angry with God about things. We are trying to figure out as finite, limited beings, a infinite, unlimited, holy God. Doesn't work, does it? If, if, if any of you know about um, uh, computer systems, uh, operating systems, you know, you've got Windows XP, I'll read them out to you, Windows XP, Windows 10, Windows whatever, Windows 8, Windows... Yeah, I know, we all have our favourites. Um... You know they can't be backward compatible. Most of the time they can't be backward compatible. So uh, newer systems have a problem working with older systems. 
Is that the best way to put it, to describe it? In that example, kind of works. We're this system that kind of is trying to figure out this very advanced, very well-created system. And we're the ones going, I can figure this out even though I have no ability to do so because I'm an old system. Satnav, thank you. Yes, John. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not to frustrate. It's definitely not to frustrate. The only way we're able to grasp God in any physical sense is by Jesus. Uh, John 1, verse 18. says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father who uh, has made him known, with the Father has made him known. God as a being is invisible. You cannot see God. We know this from Moses that even when God passed by Moses, he couldn't look at him. But through Jesus, God is made known. And not only that, get this, understand this, is not only known, you can, they can, at the time when Jesus was on his earthly ministry, they saw God. When Moses could not, through Jesus Christ who came in a form that we were able to, to look at, they were looking at God. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God, the Son who is God, who came down, dwelt among people, who was seen by many, they saw God. How amazing is that? They saw him. God being made physical in Jesus, who is himself God, Jesus says, you've seen the Father, not just known, but you've seen. John 14, verses 8 to 11. says, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, that, and that will be enough for us. <laughs> just show us the Father. That'll be enough. It's fine. Just show us the Father. I imagine in some form or another, this is referring back to some, the Moses incident, just show us the Father, and we'll be, that'll be enough for us. Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at, or at least, the only time Jesus gives some sort of little way in almost, he says, at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. At least believe when you watch me go and heal people. At least believe that. And we might wonder today, what does that mean for us? Because we haven't seen Jesus in his earthly ministry. We weren't around when Jesus was on earth. We haven't seen Jesus in the same way the disciples saw him. So how can we see him? It goes on to say, 
uh, in 12 to 13, John 14, 12 to 13, says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The verse says, Whoever believes in me. Because he's returning to the Father. I, I love this, that God's had this plan in place all along, knowing that after he ascends, he has to deal with the issue of people not being be able to see Jesus. He says, you don't have to see me. Believe in me. How do I believe in him? The Holy Spirit, who he sends. How do we see God? How do we believe in him? The thing that we so underestimate as Christians is that the Holy Spirit, who has the power of Jesus, who raises people from the dead, lives, dwells within us. No longer is it bound by temples. No longer is God bound by tents. He lives in each and every person who professes and believes in his name. Believe in him. God is spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us and we worship and trust God in spirit and truth. That's how we see God today. So we move on to our second point of our passage today, uh, the essence of God. And to understand these essence, we've got five main points and, and here's where you're going to need to uh, get ready for some questions to answer. We're going to look at his attributes, five different attributes. His, uh, his, uh, him, God is sovereign. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11 to 13 says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honour come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Sometimes we need to be reminded that there are no limits to his rule. And it's so easy just to say that um, to, to feel that God is not around or God is not present or close to us in situations that just seem like they're so far from him. And yet, it is those very times that he is just as close to us. He is sovereign over all things in heaven and earth. There is no point in God's sovereignty where in our ups and downs, in our experiences, God goes, whoa, I'm not touching that. I'm not going near that. I mean, I'm authority over earth and heaven, but I'm not going near that thing that you're dealing with. And yet that's the thing he came to deal with. That's the thing that Jesus came to be with and die for. God is sovereign over all things. 
We need to hear from him that he is sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. We need to remember that he is never helpless, never frustrated, never at a loss. He's never lost for actions. He's never stuck between two decisions. He knows what he's doing. He is righteous and just. Psalm 89, verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. For God to act in his righteousness is to act for his namesake. That is that God works in his glory and for his glory. And it might, you might be fearful of these words of righteousness and justice because they're harsh words, they're hard words. But they're only hard words in this world, they're not hard words in the kingdom of heaven. The righteous just, the judge who is justified, who has justice, perfect justice. The reason why we don't need to be fearful of righteousness and justice because these very two things that God is means that he sent his son Jesus to die for every single person so that sin would be paid for. So this is hard to read just on its own when you think, but if God suddenly changed from this, then Jesus is not doing what he's doing. Do you understand that Jesus came because of righteousness and justice? Price had to be paid, justice had to be done. Righteousness, which is what we receive through Jesus Christ. So whilst these, these two words seem really hard to understand or even just to accept, without them, without God being that in that nature, then Jesus is not justified to come. And it's going to confound us because I think it but he has to be just. Yes, he does. So he sends Jesus down to pay the price, to receive the price of sin, the consequence of it, on his son instead of on us. He has to be just. A price has to be paid. So without this characteristic, if God suddenly changed, I don't know what happens with Jesus. I don't know what happens in that regard. God's gift of his son to bring salvation to mankind was God acting in his righteousness and justice. God didn't change who he was when he sent his son to die on the cross. Rather, God was and he's been exactly who he is. He is being God. The attributes of righteousness and justice are the foundation of the throne. God is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2, says, Before the mountains are born, you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. God's nature is without beginning and without end, free from all succession of time. God dwells, lives in eternity. Eternity is not extended time, but is apart from time. Remember what I said? 
sinful, limited beings trying to understand a perfect, limitless God? Yeah, this is one of those. You're not going to understand this. I don't. Time has no control over God and he does not have to work with the structures of time unless he wants to or desires to. Unless he chooses to. As an eternal being, he is, a free, he is free to give the gift of eternity to his creation in his good pleasure. All of God's attributes exist and are glorified in his eternalness. God is love. 1 John 4, 13-16 says this is how we know that we live in him and he in us he has given us uh, he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of god god lives in them and they in god and so we know and rely on the love god has for us god is love whoever lives in love lives in god and god in them Spurgeon says, you can trace the beginning of, a hu of human affection. You can easily find the beginning of your love to Christ. But his love to us is a stream whose source is hidden in eternity. He loved us before we loved him. That's what that is. That's what he says. We can trace back the moment that we believed in Jesus, that we believed in God. But God is in eternity and always loved us and loves us. We cannot trace back when God first loved us because he is eternal and always loves us. It's going to blow your mind there, isn't it? So God's love is not based on merit. God's love is not based on how well we can do. God's love is not how well or well-behaved we are. It's not based on merit of the person receiving it. But because God is love, God is not willing that any person should perish, but wills that everyone repent and live. God's love is not measured by how much you deserve it. If that were so, then we'll all be dead. We'll all be in hell. For we deserve nothing. But in Christ, through his love freely given, God has defined love. If there's been any merit, it's been through Christ Jesus and not of ourselves. You don't have to seek merit to earn his love. Here comes the test. Omnius... I can't even say the word. Omniscient. Who knows what omniscient means? To do with knowing everything. Yeah, all knowing. What about omnipresent? That's got to be an easy one. Everywhere? Everywhere present. Omnipotent. Read it as omnipotent, powerful, all-powerful. 
big. <laughs> Omniscient, knowing everything, omnipresent, present everywhere, omnipotent, unlimited power. Let's go through these briefly. God's, God's omniscience, <sighs> trying to keep adjusting the omniscience, omniscient, omniscience, omniscience, there's a way to say it, omniscience. God's omniscience is his knowledge of all things, including actual, possible, past, present, and future. Another quote for you. These quotes are really helpful. Uh, Spurgeon. He says, We see things as they come one after the other in a a procession. But God is in a position from which he sees all at once. A man travelling through England sees a portion at a time. But he, he that looks at a map sees the whole country present before him, there and then. God sees everything as now. Nothing is past, nothing is future to him. Spurgeon is such a way to just boil down verses in the Bible and just to explain exactly what really what God is saying. Omnipresent. There was a story of a, uh, an atheist man. Uh, he came to be a Christian by the act of his own doing. Um, and this man had written on a bit of paper, God is nowhere. And he'd given it to his child to read every day. He didn't want them to grow up thinking there was a God. Wanted them to be an atheist. But the child read the note differently. And I'm trying to remember. I haven't got it on there. I did put it on there before. But instead the child reads the note as God is now here. The same spelling, different emphasis. Adding a space. God's omnipresence is not up for debate. Uh, It's not something that we uh, have to argue for. It's in the Bible and it's true. It's a stated truth of the word. Jeremiah 23, uh, 23 to 24 says, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away, who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see? Who can hide in secret places so I cannot see them? declares the Lord. Do not, do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Just because we think we can hide doesn't mean we are hidden from God. Just because we think we are hidden from him in the things, how we live our lives, never let it fool you uh, that somehow you've found a way to hide from him. And I'm not saying that as a condemnation on you. I'm saying that as, as a great promise of God. That there is no place he can't go. There is no place he can't be. He can be everywhere. He can be present in the most dire situations. He is present and was present in Sri Lanka. He is present there now. He is present here now.
omnipotent, omnipotent. Ephesians 3 verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. I'm going to give you another challenge. This probably relates to worldview theology, it's called. And you might think, how am I going to learn that? How am I going to know what this is, theology stuff? So what we see here is that God has all power and can do all everything in his power. Is there things that God cannot do? Is there things that God cannot do? You won't get it because this is where you have to switch to the thinking. The thinking doesn't come from saying, what, what are the things that God cannot do? So I know what he can do, what are the things that he can't do. There's no list that exists that says he can't do these things. Here's an easy way to understand it. God cannot contradict his holy character, his essence. So if God is eternal, what can't he do? He can't annihilate himself. God cannot kill himself. He cannot end himself because he is eternal. There is no beginning, there is no end. He is eternal. He cannot lie. Why can't he lie? Because he is truth. He cannot not keep his word because he is faithful. And God cannot be tempted by evil because he is truth. He is light. See, so in your mind, you're probably thinking, here's like a whole load of stuff that God cannot do. Instead, it's the things that contradict who he is. That's all really worldview theology really looks at in some, to some degree. It says, what God cannot do is that he can't go against himself. He cannot contradict his own character. Hence why when we look at Jesus, Jesus has to come, because he can't contradict himself when, when he says that people have to pay, the price of sin has to be paid. He can't just put that off. He can't just say, meh, we'll just forget about that. Because he can't contradict himself. But the hope is that Jesus was sent to pay for the sin. So that we didn't have to, but the sin was still paid for. And so we're free from it. The omnipotence of God gives every believer a firm foundation to trust him and have confidence in his ability to keep the magnificent promises in Scripture. The word means, I think I had a slightly different meaning, but all-powerful. It means all-powerful. It refers to the fact that God's power is infinite and unlimited. He can do with power anything that power can do. Go back to the limited, finite mind trying to understand the infinite, unlimited God. In a different way, and maybe another way, God has the power to do all he wills to do. He has the resources and the ability to work his will in every circumstance in the universe. And 
And we worry about these uh, day-to-day things that we really struggle with and we haggle over in our, in our hearts and we, we wrestle with. God is, God is in charge of the universe. God is in charge of keeping things as he sees things to be kept. I think God is pretty much powerful enough to deal with our day-to-day stuff. Ray Pritchard, in his sermon series on the Omni, it's called uh, the Omni Attributes of God, he writes this. He says, These attributes are difficult to grasp because they describe truths about God that have no analogue in human experience. We are limited as to place power and personal knowledge. God is not. Thus we say that God is omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, present everywhere, and omnipotent, all-powerful. We use these words describing because we are not these things. We don't have the ability to be these things. We are not everywhere all at once. We are not all-knowing. We are not all-powerful. But God is. There's no uh, relationship in the world that we look at today, in the material, physical world. We can't say, oh, I see omniscience everywhere. You don't. The cleverest person is not all-knowing. The person with the highest IQ in the world is not all-knowing. They're just quite clever. They're not all-knowing. Unchanging and true. 1 John 5, verse 20 as we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The truth that is spoken about here is a truth that is utterly dependable, that does not fail. People might ask, why did God send his son to die? It said that we might live. He didn't change in that moment. There was, there's never a time when someone can pick apart God and say, ah, but then he changed his mind, didn't he? Or he was, he was a different person when he did this. No, he's not. And ever believe that God was this God and that God. God is God all the time. Don't ever believe that there was a different God of a different time and a, another God of a new time. Because that would suggest a change in God, wouldn't it? That would mean that God was always changing. And that's not right or biblical. God never changes from the beginning of time as we perceive it. In the Garden of Eden, he still has not changed today. He's still the same God. God's word cannot fail or disappoint. God's unchanging truthfulness is that we can stand on his promises with full assurance of faith. No matter how we feel, no matter how dire our circumstances, we can trust and rest on this great attribute of God forever and ever. Uh, I look at this, when I, when I 
was, was writing this, I thought, wow, that must be one of the things that those people have in China, that those Christians have in China, that God is not going to disappoint them and never will. That sense that they will still meet together to praise and worship him because he's never going to fail them. Because they don't see death as a failure. Because they're going to join him in heaven when they die. Death is not failure. And so often we have, we do see that. Death is some form of failure. We get ill, we die. And yet for those that believe in Jesus, it's not a failure. It's meaning we're going to enter the kingdom. So as we draw this to a close, as Christians, we're only able to be as God ordains us to be. We're only able to be because of who God is. If God was a simple, easily understood being, where would that leave us? How quickly have you got bored with something when you figured it out? What about a puzzle? Would you do that puzzle that you figured out? Would you do it day after day, hour after hour? Doing the puzzle, tipping it up, doing it again, tipping it. If God was that simple to understand, you would get bored. I'm going to bet you that you're not going to do the same puzzle every day. God is not that simple puzzle. The depths of who God is is not designed to frustrate as we explore the depths of our own character and nature, discovering those places within us that are in need of discovering, we need a God, the God, who is infinitely deeper. We need a God who went further than any of our failures. We need a God that went further than any failure that we can ever imagine that we would encounter. The God who is infinitely deeper than us to know how to deal with those places in us that are hidden in darkness. God's very being, being deeper and richer than any person, means we have a God that we can testify to, who knows our weakest weaknesses, our strongest strengths, Never be in a moment where anything we have done or do is too far for God to reach. Jesus dying on the cross was not to make us feel better about our indiscretions or our mishaps. He wasn't just correcting a little mistake. He was paying the price of sin so that we would no longer be yoked by its power that we would no longer be enslaved by it. Jesus, who himself is God, who is ever so much more powerful, whose being is far deeper than we can imagine, can reach the places and depths no one else can reach. Was there a beer advert? Do you remember a beer advert from many years ago? Reach the parts that other beers cannot reach. God is the God 
It reaches the parts that no other God or person can ever reach. And that is the power of the infinite, unlimited, ever-present Holy God. And here it is. Here is, here is where it all comes to fruition now. This God who is unlimited, who is all-powerful, who is ever-present, beckons us in to his kingdom. We cannot even imagine what perfectness is. You can't even imagine it. I imagine as far as we can go is someone not making mistakes, someone not, not sinning, someone not... We cannot even imagine and comprehend a God without any flaws, any faults, no problems, he has no stress. But in that, he beckons us in. says, you can come be part of this kingdom. You can come and have righteousness because of Jesus. And because of that, we can share in his glory forever and ever. I might have ended on this is who God is. But I've probably scratched 0.001% of who God actually is. Uh, it is not for sermons to teach you all who God is. It is for each of us to get into a relationship with God and to study and to learn and to know who he, who he is. So any message from here about who God is, is it's just a taster, just to whet your appetite. We're going to pray, uh, and then we'll say the blessing together.